The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. My guest this week is uh, Henry Cook, who was until very, very recently a uh, chief political reporter, I think is his title, maybe, uh, for stuff. And he is, as he says in the pod, he's 29 years old, but also somehow feels like a gnarly veteran of the press gallery, which is an institution that a couple of years ago, probably most of us only were dimly aware of, and then through the course of the pandemic and the 1pm briefings became a very sort of public one. I've spoken to Derek Cheng on this podcast before, so it's not the first time we've sort of assessed that. But um, but I think, you know, like the, the the changing role of it and the way that 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 very important institution, you know, that scrutinises our politician suddenly became a very public one and had to deal with a, a quite a, a re-engineered relationship with the public, particularly certain elements of the public, you know, most prominently during the occupation is real interesting. Um, why did I have Henry on? I've always got on real well with him. I've always admired his work, like, I think from from very early on, he was he was like very active on Twitter and had a good sense of humor and and didn't take the job too seriously, but at the same time took the job really really seriously. Um, the thing that feels like the emblematic Henry Cook moment for me is I was down in Parliament for some I think it was like some national party like midwinter Christmas or something like that and. The, the, the gallery were there, but they were also sort of running back and forth between there and Parliament because I think the abortion law reform bill was passing and, and everyone was on it, right? Like this was a, was a very big, important piece of legislation. But the thing that buzzed me out was that um, Henry had like a spreadsheet on his phone, which trying to use Excel on your phone, like that's, that's really not a good time, where he had everyone's vote tallied and it just felt like a special extra level of kind of politics nerd wonkery that even by gallery standards seemed above and beyond and um you know if you read his work on the regular like he just come he he just finds us as like different ways into stories he'll he's he's really good on policy he's good on the sort of the the kind of internecine um, stuff within parties, particularly the Green Party, and you know, he talks about why that's sort of slightly easier to report on than, than other parties. But you know, like he's he's just been like someone I've loved reading over the years, and uh, I think it's a, lo- a loss to the gallery, but I don't think it'll be for long because that 
guy just has the the feel of someone who will will be in it for a long time. So yeah, it's it's a fun conversation about an area of reporting that is sort of very specific, very public, but also ninety percent of us, even even us journalists, will will never get to experience. So this is Henry Cook on the fold. Kia ora, Henry, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good, man. It's so good to, to have you on here. I feel like uh, it's, it's been a long time coming. Um, been a big admirer of your, your work for some, some time. And I feel like, I don't know, so some people within journalism just feel like they were made to do a real specific thing, and, and that alone, and, um, and I feel like that... that that's you in the gallery, like like you were just kind of made to be in that institution. Like, when did you when did you first discover that it was a thing, and 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 when did you start to think, oh, maybe that's where I should be? I mean, you're right, and that I'd be a terrible like crime reporter, um, <laughs> or, or, or or many other types of reporter. Um, I think I first I, my I grew up next door to Richard Harmon who's the um, editor of Politic, which is like a, a very very uh, good inside politics news- newsletter from London Gallery. But he's a gallery veteran. He's been around since Muldoon. Uh, and so I, I kind of always knew that there were political reporters from that, um, just because I was really a friend of his daughter. But uh, and, and I was always very interested in politics. Um, but I think probably at around university, I, I, I clicked that there was a specific... Um, a, specific, a specific thing called the gallery in Parliament, and it was people who only reported on politics, and I wanted to be there from then. Did you have to kind of earn your strike? Because I feel, I feel like you you seem to be there from you know you're you're a young looking dude at the best of times, <laughs> but when you when you first got in there, you were very young looking, and and yet it seems like an institution that you're supposed to have to pay your dues and work some kind of you know horrible beat to to get there but what what was your what was your journey in and and how did you find it when you sort of first walked into this place that a lot of journalists are kind of you know intimidated by kind of you know wonder about but most of us won't ever experience so i guess my journey there was slowly my journey into media which was um basically happen starts and good luck when i was uh almost like last week or seeing the last week of high school which would have been 2010 um, they invited uh, staff invited uh, the two best media studies students um, from Wellington High School, which is my high school, um, to some kind of uh, consulted workshop, you know, away day thing at the old museum hotel in, in Wellington. And I was not um, one of the best media studies students, but my my, my best friend was, and and she um, she took me along because she basically got invited and, and brought a friend. Um, but she sat with the accountants, and I sat. Uh, with uh, Mark Stevens and Sinead Boucher, who's now a CEO and now a group digital editor, but at the time we're kind of, I think I think Sinead might have been staff editor and, and Mark was just below her or, or somewhere you know much further down the food chain, but still um, still an editorial. Uh, had a really fun day with them talking about kind of the future of newspapers and stuff, which I was somewhat interested in just from high school. And um, Sinead said, "Do you want a summer job?" I said, "Absolutely." And then throughout uni, I kind of did a, uh, a one day a week and, and longer hours during summer, odds and ends for stuff, you know, like sometimes they would write headlines for a tech section. Most of the time I would do photo galleries, which was at the time an important, you know, <laughs> vertical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember those days. Um, 
so yeah, I did that, and I was, and and so that meant after uni, I kind of naturally went into stuff and was a national reporter or, or first intern for a year, and then just one of the kind of pool in the pool of what we called staff reporters back then. I think we still have it as a team, which was kind of write-offs, uh, quick breaking news, live blogs, that kind of thing. Just a taste of everything, but not that much, not very deep in anything either. Like it was kind of very, um, you, you would do quite a few yards a day. So that was, um, I guess that's where I, I read uh, before the gallery for, for quite a while. And I did try to get into the gallery almost immediately, like in 2016, uh, and apply for a job there and did not get it, which was, you know, ahead of a time, but, but it kind of made sense to me as well because it was pretty early in my career, but you have to try. Uh, and then later on, uh, I guess for next year in 2017, when another role came up, uh, my, my I wasn't even going to apply again because I was like, you know, I tried to get in, I'll try again in, in like five years and I've got more stripes. Uh, but... I, my boss said to apply, and I did, and it all worked out, which is great. They actually hired me and the other person who applied because they liked both of us, me and Laura Walters. Um, so I came in in 2017, and you're right about the striped thing, and that, uh, but I think that's a an old thing. I think it used to be a lot more. Um, you do your 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 you know five years in a in a regional paper, five years in a major metropolitan paper, and then you can finally come to the gallery. And I'm not saying this is better now, but it's just very different now because there's a lot. Like I'm probably on the older end of the gallery at some at some levels. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, younger people coming in now. Yeah, that, I mean that that's quite interesting. Like, how have you noticed? I mean, you've only been there five five years, but it does feel like the composition and just the the general like level of scrutiny or awareness of what it is as an institution has changed quite a lot in that time. What, what have you kind of noticed um, in your time there? Well, some things, um, some things stay the same and some people are still there. Um, you know, we, we still, we still have, we still have Barry Soper, we still have Audrey Young, um, although Audrey's, Audrey and Barry are in slightly different roles now than when I arrived. But they had, and, and of course, Jane Patterson. Um, but there's been, I, I think, a, a slight, um, a slight generational shift towards people who are quite a lot younger Especially, um, especially in, in like radio and print, this so on TV, uh, and I, I think that's just part of it is just that it's really hard to have kids in the gallery, so it's kind of a natural expiry date for a lot of people. Um, and part of it is I think journalists don't see it as the be all and end all anymore in a way they might have before. Maybe I maybe I was always someone who saw it this way, and lots of people did it. But I, I feel like a lot of people I know who would be great in the gallery kind of end up in roles which are more kind of long form, slightly less pacey, but really good journalism roles outside of a gallery that still have, you know, massive political impact and whatnot. Um, and because there's probably more of those roles for people, and I mean, this applies all the way up to people like Patty Gower, who have like a, you know, a, mm. a national reporter role where they can do basically anything they want. Um, and it's great because there's those roles that have that kind of national importance that aren't in parliament. I think mean, there's probably a lot of reporters who would go to the gallery who end up going for those roles instead. There's obviously a bunch of different ways you can do political reporting. You know, there's this sort of horse racy mm. stuff, and but the thing that you seem to have kind of glommed onto is is more. There, there is a bit more of a kind of a policy. Ben, I, I sort of feel like you know, you're never happier than when there's a a new like national policy statement on urban development or something that's come out, and and there's a, an opportunity to really kind of get your head into that is, is that sort of fair to say 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not not at all the only one or anything like that. But I think I think it's just policy is is way more interesting both to readers and to reporters. I think um, the problem is sometimes it can be uh, dense and hard to get through, and you just need more time. Time that would be much, you know, where it would be a lot faster to report a story um, on the horse race. But while saying that, you know, and I, and I love doing policy stories so they actually matter to people um, and you can, you can you know, you can write a story about how someone's life will actually be impacted by a policy, you know, negatively or positively. While saying that, uh, I love the horse race. Like, I absolutely adore stories about how politicians relate to each other, about how political parties are doing in relation to each other. And I think the best policy stories have to keep that in mind. For policy stories that are totally from an ivory tower of, like, of, of just this is happening rather than the politics around it, miss something so important. And so much of the biggest kind of internal debates within parties and debates uh, between parties are actually policy-based. Like you, you you think of it as all personality, but there's actually massive cleavages within parties that are based on policy, not on personality. Do, do you feel like that, because that, that sense of the debate within parties as opposed to between parties, I think that that's something, you know, like you've, you've done quite a lot of reporting on the Greens, for example, you know, minor party, but certainly like contain multitudes. It feels like in New Zealand, you know, the, the parties themselves, maybe this is true everywhere, but, you know, certainly you know, the, the Democrats obviously are, you know, the, the conversation about what's happening with the Democrats in the, in the US is, and the policy divisions within is extremely public in terms of the way it's litigated. New Zealand feels like the parties don't want that to become public, yet actually it's a really good forum, you know, to, to have, you know, your, your sort of core values expressed and, and, um, and kind of debated. Do, you know, do, do you? What's what's your sense of the way that parties kind of interact with you on that on those kind of internal debates versus the external um, kind of matches? Yeah, I mean, obviously, on the record, basically every party will just simply say this is the policy it's been agreed to, and that's that's the entire story. Um, you know, there's nothing there. Why are you looking? Obviously, <laughs> to get that kind of stuff, um, you need to go a bit more a bit more in, inside. I think one of the one of the um, one of the things there with the Greens that's different from the other parties is the Greens pay more attention, from what I can tell, to their membership. Or at least the battles that are within the membership are probably battles that are having within caucus as well. But you can see the caucus members, this used to be the case, the caucus members have kind of get in on the private Facebook pages and start talking to each other about them. So so, so clearly MPs are invested in these debates. Whereas if you go to something like the Labour Party, um, you know, a Labour Party conference will vote on a remit for a policy to say lower the voting age, and it won't it won't mean anything. Like the caucus will just be like, "Oh yeah, that's the Labour Party," but we have a Labour Party in Parliament, um, and we are the ones who decide on these things. Uh, so, so you get less of a a look in on what's going on in the caucus room, where you get quite a good look in with with parties like the Greens. But yeah, I mean, obviously, it's also a thing that happens more to parties in trouble. Like parties in trouble, and especially in opposition, have a um, uh, their, their dirty laundry is more easily, um, you know, accessed by journalists. Um, you know, it's been a, after basically nine or twelve years, really, of a national party being this perfect unit of like never breaking ranks and and almost never really leaking, from what I can tell, apart from like a few things around Judith Collins. Um, all of a sudden, in opposition, there's you know all these interesting things going on within the party that I'm sure probably were going on at some level within government, but it's just easier to get someone to leak to you when they're not a minister, when they think that they might become leader if they can you know strain the narrative in a certain way or at least get promoted 
uh, just gets a lot easier to get into the parties. Yeah, in terms of the the stories that you sort of look back on, uh, you know, that, that you sort of, whether it was you enjoyed the reporting the most or felt like they were the most consequential, what are the things that, that sort of stand out to you? I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you, you know, for example, there was that period where um, we were doing a lot of testing of, of uh, you know, the, the meth houses kind of thing. And I, I, if I recall, you had quite a big role in that, and that was ended up being a tremendously impactful story yeah i had um the meth the meth testing one i will say i i basically came on after there was the another a lot of other journalists had done a lot of good work on it and then the prime minister's chief science advisor issued this report on it that was just kind of so brutal and laying out how how government had failed on this issue but if, if you don't know basically it's, it's a long story but basically um Everyone, including Housing New Zealand, were testing houses um, for suspected meth contamination to a level that was kind of absurd. That was at no no level of danger, and evicting people if if they met this very very low standard, which which had been set improperly, uh, and then uh, taking them to the tenancy tribunal often for the costs of remediation, which could be kind of in the thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars. And completely redundant remediation. It was yeah. it was really quite an episode, and and uh, you know looking back oh, on and it. everyone. Everyone failed. Sorry, I'm going on, but every every single part of society that's supposed to stop this kind of stuff happening failed. Like um, the government was doing it. The government set the standard that was wrong, and then was also the landlord who was doing a lot of it. Um, the media kind of ebbed, uh, led into the fear campaign about this, and was doing stories saying, you know, forty percent of houses in New Zealand have this level of meth damage that's dangerous. Um, really, just just repeating stuff in the industry. Um, you know, whole hog. And then the justice system through the tenancy tribunal were also allowing these things to happen and not checking this, the standard to make sure it was actually reasonable. Um, so I, I read back and just did a story with it where I found a, I found a kind of pensioner who'd been kicked out of the house that she'd had since the, since the 50s because probably her grandson at one point smoked meth in the house once um, and she kind of uh, had to fry all her clothes. They said they were contaminated and everything. It was really horrible. That story, that was a really... Um, I guess impactful and, and, and important story. I probably had the most fun on some of those days where Parliament just fell apart. Like I hate to say it, but Jamie Lee Ross day, the first day, um, when he was just you know when he drove overnight. Um, <laughs> we, we were waiting for him at the airport, and he wasn't at the airport. He was <laughs> in Parliament, so he asked how he got there, and he was like, oh, "I drove down here from Auckland overnight, and then went to warehouse stationery to print his like twenty five minute speech where he." Um, you know, accused the the current leader of the opposition of of electoral fraud and many other things. Um, that was kind of fantastic, just and 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 the sense of being there and knowing that this was um, this blew everything up about what was going on in, in politics at that point. Uh, and and other days, I, you know, I love I love a leadership spill. Um, the day that uh, the day that national kind of fell apart over the. Um, sorry, oh, the top, the top bar of leadership caucus run, the famous caucus run where um, Nikki Kay said Paul Goldsmith was mouldy. That was just a lot of fun. Um, it sounds I, I know the parties um, were somewhat traumatised by it, but I know they can look back now and laugh at some at some level, given they're in a much better position. But there's a um, I suppose that sense of uh, there's a lot of great things about being in a gallery is being being in the corridor or, or you know tiles where it happens and being able to run first you hear a statement from someone and it's kind of wild and when you can run to the person who the statement was made about and ask them about it straight away you're telling them for the first time they're hearing it for the first time um that's really good and yeah there's other days where like um there was big new zealand first versus labor ructions those are always also really good i mean it, it is such a strange institution right where you know you're 
the 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 sort of politicians and the parliamentary staffers are, are you know they're on some level they're your colleagues you know you're you're all in the, the mm. same building you go to work each day um, and I'm sure it, you know that there are friendships even relationships that get forged out of that and then at various times you are you just have to the the roles must be sort of shifting the whole time mm. how do you navigate those quite tangled uh, relationships between the the various uh, parties and and you know. There is a you know some kind of academic critiques of political reporting can tend to sort of assume the thing is tainted by that, but I don't see any other way you could really do the thing. Yeah, hmm. yeah. How does how does that all sort of play out? Do you think? I, I mean, the watchword or the watchphrase for me is like friendly but not friends. So there's no reason to not be friendly and not um, you know have a laugh sometimes or, or even have a drink at some points. But you're not uh, you're not good mates, you know. You 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 should never feel bad sticking the knife in, or if you do, you just still need to stick the knife in <laughs> when needed. Um, and, and I think that's you know that's not easy. Um, and I I think the academic critiques have some, you know, some probably some value. But what I would say, and yeah, as you say in response to that, basically I think people need to be in the building with these relationships to be able to get the stories that we do about what's going on. In various places, and if you were only reporting from press releases and maybe press conferences, you would just miss a lot of what's going on. You could you, things could go ha- happen right underneath your nose, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a place for reporters who are that pure. That you know, reporters who do. I think of um, Gordon uh, Campbell, who, who writes from a, you know writes from a perspective, but he definitely writes from a perspective where he's he goes to postcard, but he doesn't, um, from what I can tell, have deep relationships with with um, current MPs, and it's a very much an outsider's perspective on things, but it's often great journalism. Um, I, I just think that there's a, there's a pl- time and place for that, but it doesn't mean that the insidery stuff shouldn't exist. A- and on, I guess on the relationship thing as well, one of the things you didn't mention, but which happens a lot, is actually researching together. So both of the major parties in opposition and the smaller parties will go to journalists with... OAAs with written parliamentary questions and pitch stories to them that way. And you have to look at them with a grain of salt. Often they're kind of trying to cook something up that's not quite what the OAA says. Sometimes it's really good. You know, they have they have teams of people who can do more OAAs than you can. And they can do written parliamentary questions, which are faster. So sometimes you end up establishing a relationship with someone and you're around and you're asking an opposition MP to do a written parliamentary question for you just so it's an interesting matter for you and, and those relationships are really important because you're essentially acting as kind of co-investigators same with select committees you know you might text an mp um who's who's asking questions and say can you ask the ceo of xyz um, agency this and and they'll be able to, to do that for you and that is something which they can push on in a way that you can't in a press conference um and i also to be fair i think often this is a way of mps flattering journalists um of, of making them feel special when when they might when they might not necessarily be. Um, I, I sort of, me, me and um, me and Thomas Coughlin from the Herald were having a drink with a um, a certain person who was a new MP at the time, but might might be the deputy leader of a national party now. Um, <laughs> and, and she was and she was basically asking us for advice on how to talk to a press gallery and whatnot, which was very flattering for us. You know, we're all like, oh, you know, it's just you know, uh, don't just do press releases, make the timing really well, all this stuff. And at the time, in the back of my mind, I knew that she had worked for John Key for many years <laughs> in communications. So like absolutely, absolutely every every notion of how to talk to the press gallery. But um, she was making us, she was flattering us, which I you know respect as a I respect as a way to to uh, build relationships, is to to make people feel special and important. 
So speaking of Tom Coughlin, like uh, you know, you, you two were, were colleagues for quite quite a long time um, at, at Staff, and now now he's he's got, and I think you know, it's, I'm not revealing too much to say that your your friends outside of, of work as well. Yeah, what what's what's that? It's sort of like that that kind of tension again. It's a it's a similar kind of thing. Like you're you go from basically you know you're always trying to win on any on any particular story, but when when they go across the room, is are you trying to like? Beat Tom even more now. Like, what, what's that? What's the sort of um, so that that, that mean, kind yes, of dance like? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's Tom. It's, so one thing first, it's Thomas, not Tom, and he will um, he will he will look at you askance if you call him Tom. He is a he's a, a, a thousand eyes there, which he does <laughs> okay, when you call him Tom. Anyway, Thomas. Um, yes, Thomas is, is is I think probably at this point probably the best reporter. And I, I don't say this because I've left. I say this because Tom is left. Probably the best political reporter working in New Zealand today. Um, and I respect him massively and I once he left wanted to smash him every single day if possible um especially in rounds that I knew he was into uh I I, I suddenly started paying a lot more attention to the things that he was into I'm not sure I did it very often but when I did every now and then mostly in housing um it was very satisfying because um you know obviously I felt somewhat betrayed by him going to be a hero <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you know but there, there's a I think the strongest competition is with people who cover the similar stuff to you and you and you respect. Um, you know, it's it's easy to poach um it's easy to poach not poach. It's easy to scoop someone who doesn't really pay attention, but someone like Thomas who's paying a, a very large amount of attention, it's it's much more satisfying um to scoop. And I think we both have it. And he's I mean, to be clear, scooped me um more times than I've had hot dinners. Um I think we have a good we had a good relationship where we could kind of joke about that and occasionally I would you know, kind of message him at 8 p.m. and be like, by the way, this is coming up at 5 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it should be fun. He'd be like, whoa! <laughs> you know, uh, just because um, I guess I missed, missed, I missed working with him and being able to do that naturally when we'd be working on stories together. I remember... Uh... A few years ago, when the the sort of Staff Herald merger was was going through one of its periodic um, sort of hot hot patches, and and I'd written something probably pretty ill informed about why I thought that that should happen. Um, basically, as as you know, under the impression, I don't know whether it was a false one, but certainly it hasn't hasn't happened yet that they were unlikely to sort of survive at scale independently. Um, and one of the things that you know, and you sort of took issue with the with the take, which was, and I think, you know, basically saying that the fact that the, the two newsrooms are trying to beat each other constantly is a big part of what makes the journalism better and and work. And I think because we're a bit of a weird sort of magazine out on our own thing, that I, I, and, I, and I've never worked in a newsroom myself, like it. Uh, you know, I didn't really clock the extent to which that matters, and I've thought about it a lot since. You know, like, do you do you want to talk about? I guess you touched on the competitive tension there, but you know, you're working alongside people, you're attending the same press conferences, but you're always looking for edge, and you're always trying to win, and and how important that is to getting the the very most out of the gallery for the country. I, I think it's really important, and I think it makes people just do better work, just because you you try harder because you know that if you don't do the story, someone else probably will. And and I think that's so key to getting you up in the morning, to getting you 
chasing sources, not just waiting for a press release to come out, but chasing, you know, sources and saying, you know, I, I know I know XYZ decision was made at Cabinet this week. Can you tell me what it was? I know it's been released on Wednesday, but I want to know it first. Um, and I guess some people would say, is that really useful to the country to know something 24 hours ahead of time? I would say yes. I mean, it's the point of newspapers <laughs> to find out, <laughs> find out things that are not yet public and make them public that are of public interest. Um, so I, 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 yeah, as, as I said at the time, I think, I think the, the competition between the Herald and stuff in particular is, is really key, much like the competition between News Hub and One News is really key because I think it drives them both to be really like better outlets that differentiate themselves um, and and push harder on stories because they want to not just be a you know a list of wide stories of here's what happens today. And I think probably one of the the slight issues there that's kind of started to creep in is that RNZ uh, now share their copy with everyone. Which is great in a way. I think I think it totally makes sense because um, there's, there's always a, a, a hunger for more copy. But in other ways, I really hope that doesn't that doesn't even mean that either of us just drop an issue because we're like, oh, RNZ is covering it well, and we can just both take the RNZ copy because I think us us both looking for different angles on stories is really really important. And um, I would like to lose that. I, yeah, I that was what the, my my main reason for being against the merger was just that I think competition is really important. And I just don't see how you can maintain that within the same organisation. I, I, I'm sure papers do it. Like you, you see news.com.au and The Australian, I think occasionally kind of fighting over things, but 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 it's harder to see as obviously as it is. You see it in like Business Desk and, and the Herald's business section certainly still, still seems to be mm. competing for that arena. But there's something about, you know, when you're all in the same institution, it would be, I think, it would be almost impossible to maintain without some quite extreme sort of artificial engineering. And even then, you'd sort of know that that it would be okay. Mm. Hey, um, one thing which, uh, and I don't know to what extent you've had dealings uh, with, with her directly. Anna, Anna Fifield's piece that she wrote um, earlier this year, basically talking about the the horror of trying to get access to public servants and information you know which which she would have expected to get relatively easily you know, and, you know she's worked in some pretty difficult environments um you, you know which which I thought was, was and I, you know I had her on the fold to talk about it and I, I thought was was really fascinating and because you've sort of worked in the gallery not for for decades by any means but for for long enough to have seen you know the culture evolve do, you know, you know the piece I'm talking about, yeah, right? Do, yeah. do you feel like that that did, did did that feel accurate to you? And and like, do you sense that there has been a kind of, uh, you know, that that the growth in the comms industrial complex has sort of made information harder to get a hold of and access to people harder to get? Um, well, I would say it's been as bad as it's it's been bad my entire career, um, which is just a bit long. But it, it's not it's not gotten worse or better. Really, um, there's been Especially, I mean, I think it's gotten better in document terms, but but maybe a little bit worse in, in people terms. And by that, I mean there's lots of proactive releases of, of, of various papers that are actually really fascinating and whatnot. But uh, getting to a public servant who can just explain an issue to you is still extremely hard. And I think that's that's the um, the real frustration Anna was talking to, as I read it, especially was that usually if an issue is not massively controversial, you should be able to just get to someone in the public service who can just like talk you through the policy because it's complicated and you don't want to run anything wrong. And that is way, way too hard. Um, it's probably slightly easier in the gallery because uh, you can get to ministers quite easily, usually. 
Um, it's just if it's the, if it is a non-controversial issue, particularly or an issue that you know that they're pushing forwards that they want to talk about, and they will often put you in touch with a, a seconded staffer, is what you call it. So, so like a, a staffer from a ministry who sits in their office, and that seconded staffer should be able to, off the record, just explain the policy to you. So something like. Um, and as I said, this is this is easier with big policies that the government is actually pushing and they're interested in, right? So, like fair pay agreements. If you want a briefing on fair pay agreements, which is a really big, complicated piece of law, um, you will be able to get one if you're in a gallery from someone in Michael Wood's office. Uh, probably a lot harder to get a briefing on some controversial bit of you know NCTA stuff. Uh, so I think it is. It has got. An, it is. It's bad. I'm not sure if it's getting worse. I'm not sure if we can even blame the comm staff. I think we can just blame this massive aversion to risk that every ministry has instilled, um, which is kind of absurd. We're so worried that um, at some point someone's going to say, an MBAE staffer said this, and we disagree, um, which is just, uh, of course that's going to happen. You know, there's a huge ministry dealing with massive, complicated policy issues that have viewpoints of their own, and it's worth having that explained at length, even if it doesn't need to be on the record. Well, you know, another thing that, that has, has sort of happened during your time in the gallery is, is obviously the, the pandemic and that weird period that um, you know now feels weirdly distant where, where 1pm briefings were the sort of the centre of, of our days and, and your work um, suddenly became incredibly public. I wonder if you could just sort of talk about how that sort of period felt, how it impacted your job, and then particularly, like, I'm, I'm really curious about how it impacted your relationship with the public and the, the, the way that they have, way that that has sort of lingered beyond the 1pms in terms of a, a reframing of how they view you and your colleagues and the jobs that you do and how you do them. Yeah, we were on display way more than we were prior to the pandemic, obviously. I think people watched Postcab prior to the pandemic, but they were kind of tragics if they did. Um, and, and then the 1pms became, you know, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there, was, there were points where it felt felt like half the country was tuned in to a 1pm and, and the TVNZ numbers were pretty insane. I I found I found it really challenging that I, I saw my job as still going in and treating it like a press conference, not treating it like I was part of a news broadcast where my question had to have, you know, balance and, and, and whatnot. It was not. It was a press conference, um, first and foremost, in my mind. And because it was a press conference, you ask questions to get answers. And if you, especially if you're in TV, that means sometimes asking the same question three or four times because the answer they're giving is is either you know not very good or they're saying something like yes, <laughs> and you know I'm sorry, broadcast needs you not say yes, broadcast needs you to say to basically reframe the question um, and say it again as a statement so that you they have that for TV. Um, and I think a lot of people found that uh, obviously massively frustrating to watch. They felt like we were also. Um, kind of attacking a successful response. But, I mean, a successful response gets that way, in my mind, by being challenged every single day. And I think the 1PMs made it so successful because the top people, like literally, you know, Ashley Winfield and Prime Minister, the Prime Minister were, were there hearing about day-to-day issues with the system and how it was operating. And I imagined if I hadn't heard them before, they'd be going back to their staff and saying, wait, what, what, what is our position on XYZ? Why haven't we sorted out whether you can surf or whatever the, whatever the issue was? <laughs> And I know some of that seems small, but I guess I don't know what the alternative people wanted was. Was the alternative that we were supposed to sit there and be like, you know, Prime Minister, uh, first just foregrounding, uh, wow, how good has our response been? It's, it's been so good. Look at, look at us compared to Australia and the United States. So many people replied they've been saved. Clearly, level four is really working, and we think it's great. 
given all of that, can you just expand it a bit on why you think it's going so well? Um, which is just, it's like, that's, that's, you know, that's state TV shit. We're not, we're not going to do, we're not going to do, not, that's just not in the, that's not in our DNA and it shouldn't be. Um, and there is, I mean, all these people who are making this complaint knew about how good the response was. Like it was not, it was not hidden from anyone that we, people were not dying in New Zealand at the rates that they were dying in other places. It was not hidden from anyone that, you know, the, the, the economy got through all of 2020 and 2021 in a way better shape than people expected it to. That was all, I think, fairly obvious, especially, and, and, and if it wasn't obvious from a, from a front page or anything, I would say direct your anchor towards the front page or, or the news broadcast or whatever, not towards the 1pm bulletin, which for us was a press conference. But I also understand that a lot of people were seeing how we worked for the first time and they found that we were basically rude um, and we interrupted each other and all this stuff. I, I would say that's just normal press conferences. But it was also, there was also a lot of pressure on us at that point. You know, I, we were going in with... Um, basically 20 or, or 20, 15 questions from our newsrooms that they would have answered because, and this is a hard thing to explain to people, because you weren't getting any written answers with any kind of rapidity from the Ministry of Health. So your only real shot of getting a good answer was the 1pm press conference. So we were getting questions from basically every journalist in our organisation because there was no other way to ask questions. Um, so usually... You know, usually you go in with like two or three ideas for a question for postcab, but we were going in, every journalist was going in with a whole list from the organisation. So that was quite a bit of uh, pressure. So probably we were a little bit more shouty um, than normal. And the other, I see other criticism, just to, just to fork, like, I'm sure someone will write me a tweet or something um, saying that I didn't talk about this, was that we were political reporters and, and this was a health issue. Two responses to that. I mean, yes, it would have been great to get a few more, like, really scientifically um, minded journalists in, um, just just if they had a really, you know, if people who had a really good knowledge across all the preprints and stuff, that would have always been great to just have more knowledge in the room. Do not deny that at all. I would also say that uh, it was a very political response that also happened to be a health response. Um, there was nothing more political than the state saying that you can't leave your home. That's a massive you know, infringement on your civil liberties that most of the country thinks was the was the right infringement on civil liberties. But it is a massive infringement on civil liberties. It's hugely political. There's politics through every single step of it. Health is a really political thing in itself. Um, the idea that it wasn't political um, was laughable to me. And, and the reason we were there and not other journalists was generally because, well, you know, the briefings were in Parliament, we were accredited to Parliament, so we were allowed to go in. That was that was basically the explanation. Sorry, I had a bit of a rant. There. No, no, I, I think it's good, and and um, I, I obviously agree with you that that to <laughs> to try and pretend that every aspect of those years and those decisions, and even the 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 idea that you have complete access to to um, to Ashley Bloomfield, and therefore they didn't need to provide other um, access to, to information when it was such a constrained fight was that's a political mm. decision about communication and I guess you know the the, oh, totally. the whole way that, that the communications has been managed I, I think just as an observer of, of knowing how few journalists we have um, in this country and and how important the job is it, it it frustrates me somewhat the extent to which the apparatus of the state can feel like it's set up to make the job as difficult as as possible mm. in ways that are contra the public interest. And to be fair, I also think um, there were some dumb questions at 1pm. I will say that. I probably asked them myself. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. There was a lot of well, questions. Well, most people, if, you were, yeah, if most jobs were being practised in front of an audience of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, then you'd probably find some things that were 
or a bit. Uh... Oh, and sorry, Duncan, I forgot part of your question about how it changes. Yeah, so well, but, I mean, like, was... I, can, I can, I like, I, I think that I'd actually like to sort of expand that a bit because, because you were also like out there in the occupation, which not not necessarily a lot of the gallery was doing, and that felt to me like the culmination of that that sort of rejigged uh, relationship with the public that came out of the one pm. So in, in some ways, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this. Like, I can't necessarily imagine the occupation without that sort of you know without without elements of, of that recontextualized relationship and certainly the hostility to journalists came from the fact that people became aware of what of who journalists were and what they were doing so so yeah yeah talk about how the the, the relationship with the public has changed in your time um, in the gallery well yeah I think we are more recognizable um, particularly print journalists um, because of uh, the one PMs and things like that, and um, occasionally when I would do myself as you know Henry, and I was like, right, well, I do, but I go, oh, you the Henry PM says blah blah to Henry too, and I say yes, and I make a joke about him and mixed up with Jason Walls. Um, I think that's definitely it's increased that, and it also just because everyone does more video now, so like I got you know get recognised after doing more video content, and including in the occupation and stuff. Um, I think it probably did contribute to some of the very targeted hostility around journalists, um, around the occupation. Particularly, there was an earlier protest before the occupation. Mm, the tennis balls. Yeah, yeah, the tennis balls one with the hangar dern on them and stuff. And and Tova was still there at the time. Tova O'Brien, obviously one of the one of the most recognisable kind of people in New Zealand journalism, but very recognisable after the 1PMs because she always got the first or second question. And there were people who saw her and gravitated towards her to yell at her, to to film to film her while they kind of asked her questions, you know, oh, we're, we're putting the camera on, on, on your, on your, um, you know, on you now. And, and at one point they kind of almost surrounded and courted us. I was kind of with her at this point, um, you know, her, her camera, her camera person um, and me, and, and they were kind of all getting around and, so, and Parliament security had to kind of come in a bit, a bit there because it looked for a second like Tova was going to get completely circled by a very hostile group of people yelling expletives and filming her. Which I guess some people would say, isn't that what you do to politicians? Uh, but it's it's obviously very, it's, I would say it's very different when you're seeking power. I, I think the 1PMs contributed to that level of hostility, but more than that, obviously for the occupation, there was just the level of uh, the New Zealand media did not take, very, most of us did not take very seriously kind of the extreme bad faith anti-vax stuff. Um, we were not writing stories saying, oh, well, wait a minute, are we really so sure But it doesn't, you know? Does it actually hurt pregnant people? Because there was absolutely no indication that it did hurt pregnant people and there was a lot of indications that it didn't. So because of that, uh, there was just this level of hostility of, you know, I've written you four letters to the editor and you won't print them, which I understand people feel 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 like they've been locked out of that conversation. But generally they've been locked out of that conversation because they're repeating uh, misinformation which could damage, you know, public health. Yeah, so it's interesting that you think that, that it was like a sort of an access to the mainstream media that was was part of what drove that hostility, like, as opposed to... Yeah, I think a lot of these people are used to being able to write letters to the editor, or at least see their, their viewpoint displayed somewhere, you know, someone somewhere write a column being like, well, I agree with this, and there wasn't that. So, so you don't think that it was that sort of misinformation, disinformation explosion that some have attributed uh, to, you know, to, to at least witnessing in parallel with the occupation? Oh, there's a lot of that, totally, yeah. There's a lot of... It's, it's, a, it's a big toxic mess there, Um but I think, and I think when you when you feel like the mainstream media isn't listening to you or, or publishing your letters to the editor or whatnot, that makes you more likely to go watch, um, you know, counter spin, whatever, whatever, 
Info Wars or Carlisman or something, yes, um, and, and slowly have your mind um, uh, poisoned against, against certain kind of institutions in society. Uh, and I think there is just a level of like uh, lack of faith in institutions across the board, not just journalism, um, which contributes to that. When when every institution in your life has failed you thus far, why would you trust the media to tell you about vaccines? Yeah, um, and a lot of, for a lot of people, most institutions of their life have failed them. So, like, I think Ben Thomas talks about this on Oh My God, My Lunchtime, right? He, he knew someone who who was part of the historic inquiry into sex and abuse who didn't want to take the vaccine because he didn't trust the government. You've got to be like, yeah, I, I get why you don't trust the government. I'd still like to take the vaccine, but I think it's a reasonable level of distrust. It's a t- totally reasonable position. And, you know, to, to be honest, like the, the media itself, I think the media is now broadly in a relatively good space in terms of how it reports on different communities, but certainly historically it's been a a very kind yeah. of willing agent of uh, oppressing various um, people over over decades, and and we live in the shadow of that. I still think we might we might not uh, you know I, I hope there's less severe racism, but the, I, I think there's far fewer reporters in you know South Auckland, one of the most interesting parts of the country, and you know very densely populated parts of the country. There, there, from what I can tell, are very few beat reporters who are focused solely on South Auckland. I know you guys tried to do that for a while, but I, I don't understand. How that hasn't happened? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I, um, I absolutely agree with that. So you know, the the thing we haven't talked about at all is is that this is this is it for you. You're, you're, you're saying goodbye to this place that's kind of transfixed you. It's been been your workplace for for five years, but also kind of been been loomed large in your imagination for longer than that. Again, how how come you're leaving? What what are you going to do? And and can you do you think that you would? Would go back. Like, what's what's your sort of your you know? Because you're a talented dude. Um, I'm excited to see what you do in journalism beyond this. But um, yeah, what what's what's next? I so I wanted to go and do an OE in early 2020, or maybe after the election. It was kind of like the you know October after the election. That would be a good time to leave. Um, and then COVID obviously got in the way of that. I was younger then. Now I'm 29, so I'm really running out of time to do it. Uh, I basically have just never lived overseas because I was so focused on getting this job and then doing the job and I had really fun, a lot of fun on it. Uh, and I do want to come back. Um, so I feel like now is the last time where I can kind of confidently go away, hopefully be able to come back to a job in two years after the UK visa's over. But, but basically, yeah, I, I, I want to... I don't know if I want a career break, but I definitely want to uh, not quite work so hard for a few years. <laughs> It would be nice. Um, and, and just even out a bit more, like, um, you know, I, I love Wellington uh, more than most, um, but I know that it was a big world out there and I should try um, seeing a bit further. This is a, ter- this, I, this is a terrible ad for doing an OE. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just so used to these and stuff. But yeah, I, you know, the same thing that drives a lot, a lot, of, a lot of Kiwis in their late 20s to go overseas, basically. I feel like if I don't do it now, I never will. Uh, as someone who never did it, I admire you for doing it, and um, thank you so much. It's been, it's been. I, I like the gallery is, is is not a place I have ever worked or will ever work, but I find it very fascinating and have really enjoyed your work and 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 enjoyed having you on this pod. Thank you, Henry. Thanks so much, Duncan. The fold is brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with Vodafone. It was hosted by Duncan Greve. Produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. To find out how Vodafone can help you reach your personal and business potential, visit vodafone.co.nz.
Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.